Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. And welcome to maybe the first time in ages I've said the Underwater Sunshine Podcast <laughs> without trying to say something else. Uh, my name is Adam Duritz. I'm here with my friend. James Campion. How are you, sir? Pretty good, pretty good. You know, I was thinking the other day about like friends we played in bands and guys we played with. And I know we were going to get together another time and talk with Immer about uh, sordid humor and uh, some of the other bands we were in together as well as Monks of Doom, which he's in now. But I was wondering, um, what, what happened to the guys in Satire? Are you, are you still close to any of the guys in the band you played in? What, what are they doing now? Um, well, oh, this is great. These guys are going to be mentioned on the podcast. So my friend Anthony Mizraka, we are still, that's my uh, drummer. Uh, one of the few people I've known my, his entire adult, my entire adult life. I think he was 19 when he joined the band in 84. I was 21. He and I became very close. We lived together for a while, and then he got married and lived across the street, bought the house across the street from the band house in Putnam Valley, New York, what I used to call the Putnam Bunker, where we used to rehearse. We built a whole studio downstairs, and the whole band lived in the, in the house together. So it was, it was sort of it was a dream of mine. That's really cool. We did that. Well, not living in the house together, but I lived in a house with a bunch of friends, and we all rehearsed over there. Yeah, it was cool. We did it on purpose. My parents had moved away. I, we talked in the very first podcast of how many times I moved when I was a kid. My parents finally kept moving and I stayed. <laughs> that was the last time I was like, have a good life. So when I was 21, <laughs> 22, they moved to, uh, to North Carolina and we decided, well, uh, everybody was either living at home or living in squalor. So we all decided we'd get a band house and live in squalor together. Uh, we had no heat. I mean, to this day, I still, when I smell kerosene, I gag because we used to put kerosene heaters all around, which is totally illegal and horrible for your voice. I, I remember a kerosene heater just to my right me breathing it in while I was singing. It's the worst thing ever. I'm sure it took years off my life. <laughs> um, so Anthony and I remained friends. He was in my wedding party. So we remained friends for years. He, he actually, I sang a song for my wife at our wedding and he, he, he sat next to me and sang harmony. It was great. It was a real treat and an honor. Um, How long have you guys been married? We got married in 99. So it's, what the hell year is this? 19 years then? Yeah. And it was just Scarlett's birthday this, uh, the other day. Yes. Yes. March 9er. How old uh, is she? She is 10 now. A I think you should throw out a happy birthday, Scarlett, because oh, it just you. happened. Yes. Know. By the time she hears us, she's going to be 11. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, so, uh, and then Freddie Cercina, who is my guitar player. We had several guitar players. He is married, married uh, his uh, high school sweetheart, Kim. And Kim, who for years would always send me a Christmas and a birthday card. It was sweet. Uh, and so we get together for that. They live, they live in New York still. Uh, they have places up in Vermont. We visit in Vermont with them. And Herb was my bass player. Kind of lost touch with him. Uh, he had left the band at the very tail end of it. And then we had another ba- uh, bass player, Andy Rice, who I believe listens to the podcast. So, Andy, how, how you doing? Uh, and uh, there were many people, as I know you guys had, prior to Counting Crows and even in Counting Crows coming and going for the band but that was basically the core of the band and and uh, we sort of started to fade in like 88, 89 and I told you many times I've always been impressed by your story because at 26 I felt like I can't do this anymore you know I just can't do this anymore I, I was never as talented as you guys or you certainly or anything like that but it was just it wasn't even about the talent, I think, because we had fans and we did pretty well. We put a, we got a record made and it never came out. But A and M was interested in a couple other labels. But I just couldn't do it anymore. I really just couldn't do it anymore. That's the only answer I have for that. Well, was, I remember feeling that way very clearly. I remember after my first real adult band uh, split up, going to Europe, saving up money, working for a while, landscape and construction work dishwashing, saving up money to go to Europe backpacking because I really wanted to just try and 
clear my mind and stop playing music and, you know, put a, like a buffer between this time where music was everything and whatever I was going to do with my future and going to Europe with that in mind. Um, it's funny because, uh, Anna, uh, from the song Anna Begins, uh, was just in New York with her husband, uh, last week. Yeah, you they told came me about through, that. And we're that still good friends, and you know, yeah. we see them whenever we're in, in uh, Australia. But we haven't been down in a few years, so I hadn't seen them. And it was really great because they came by one night, and uh, Anna and her friend Vanessa, and we all got hammered here. Tom had just finally arrived from uh, Ireland. We had a gig in Austin, and he couldn't get to America because of the storms in Ireland. Right. Uh, they had more snow, more inches of snow in Cork in that month. Than in the last hundred years combined. Wow. Um, so he was stuck in Cork. The great Tom Mullally we're talking about, the stage manager or tour manager and tour a manager. wonderful, wonderful human being who both scared the shit out of me and inspired me in my time with County Crows. <laughs> uh, Tom couldn't get in here and Anna and Tom, her husband Tom, couldn't get here either because... The planes wouldn't land. They tried several times, I guess, to land at JFK, and then finally they uh, shunted them off to Toronto, and they were stuck in Canada for a couple of days. And they finally got down here, and we all hung out. And then I left for uh, for Austin to go play the gig, and uh, Anna and Zoe decided to go out together. They had hit it off, and they drank all the wine, I think, in New York. Um, <laughs> on the course of that evening, they started uh, sending me pictures and FaceTimes where they were wearing uh, a lot of... They took the Christmas decorations down off the tree, which I have neglected to do as of yet. By the and they're wearing them as earrings and headgear. <laughs> By the way, there there is... Oh, well, that's a, that's a good wine. Hi. Uh, there's a Christmas tree still in Adam's apartment here, and we are nearly into spring. Doesn't it look great, though? It's still it's still green. When they say evergreen, they're not kidding. Now, my Christmas tree, which was also a live tree, was looking peaked, to say the very least, like on January 2nd. Now, you have to know one thing about my wife, Erin. When Christmas is over, it's over, man. We got back on New Year's. I went to work, I think, on the 2nd of January when I got home at the end of the 2nd. There was no sign there ever was Christmas in my house. But, yes, it's still here, and it does look good. It's got Yoda at the top. Also. I mean, i got to get rid of it soon. I, I unplugged it from everything because a long time ago because it suddenly occurred to me I'd went over to check on it one time and I was like it's, it's very green <laughs> yeah. but it's very dry yeah. and I wouldn't leave that plugged in for all the money I mean that thing would go up in flames I would just be it would just be a matter of time um, I don't yes. know why I'm talking about this That's yeah but wait a minute wait let's get back to Anna now a lot of people are going to want to I know they're screaming at their computers right now please ask him something so Anna of Anna Begins is a very important person, obviously, in your life. This wasn't somebody in a passing fancy that you used for a song, so much so that you guys are still friends, which after all the months, I must say, of us working on the book, you might have mentioned in passing. I don't remember it. I was stunned when you told me last week, oh, yeah, Anna, Anna from Anna Begins is going to come by. I'm like, why? You stay in touch with her? And he's like, yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah, we're good friends. All the people that I, you know, my friend Mike Conley and I, we traveled around uh, Europe backpacking that, that year, uh, and... Uh, we ran into these two Australian guys in the hold of a ship, Gavin and Elroy Stewart, but we called him Elroy because he looks like a giant version of Elroy from the Jetsons. And if I showed you pictures of, uh, of Stewart and pictures of Elroy, the car, who's a cartoon, you would be like, <laughs> wow, they really look alike. Um, uh, we're still friends with both of them. I see them more than Mike because I'm down in Australia more often. Uh, and uh, we got to Greece at one point. We met Fiona and Anna um, and... Uh, Mike and I decamped to a 
rooms above a cantina on the beach there in Greece. And we were living with Anna and Fiona for a little bit. And uh, we're all still friends. They're all married with kids or unmarried with kids, but, uh, or unmarried without kids. <laughs> in certain, but they're like four of my favorite people, Gavin, Fiona, uh, Anna and, and Elroy. And they're, they're with these wonderful, they've all found wonderful wives and husbands and they're, or, or just partners. It's funny. They grew up just like who they were when they were kids. Um, they're the same. I can look at them now. I spend a half an hour with them now. I know exactly why I was friends with them then. They're no different except they're, they're grown up and they grew up really well. They, I, I don't know. They're all, they're some of my favorite people and they were, they remain that way. That doesn't always happen. No, um, but they're, they're really cool. And, uh, especially when you you have a relationship with someone now I am I've mentioned many times on this podcast and also in my writings that I am friends with very very few ex-lovers or people that I had real experiences with it's always difficult for people but I think it's very rewarding when you do find you keep in touch with people that they are happy and that you're happy and that things have moved on and you are reminded I think that was so great what you just said you're reminded when you see people that you knew how old were you when you went to Europe 20, 21, 22? no a little older 24 maybe 25 okay so you're still in that period where and we've talked about it we talked about it on the very first podcast these people that you're bef- you befriend in your teen years or early 20s that stay bonded to you because you went through a lot of stuff like the guys in satire will always be my brothers we went through a lot of heady shit together and we stuck together as long as we could and if anything I was the the demise as they say in English uh, demise of that band uh, because I just could not do it anymore and I think it's when you say that when you get together with somebody you haven't seen for a while especially if they live on the other side of the globe and you see the people they're with and you're reminded of why you love them in the first place and you like them that is really one of the great joys of getting older is to see, to be reminded, and almost given a stamp of, hey, nice job, young Adam. (laughs) Nice job, young James. You were not fucking around then. These are real people. Because so many people go through your lives then. And and we talked about it in the very first podcast, in the times that we moved, and you moved a lot, so that was very prevalent to your art and your personality. You have to make an effort to stay in touch with people. And it's harder when you get older, especially for me, married and with a kid. A lot of people that I hung out with that don't have kids, you just don't see them as much anymore. No, it's really true. Especially that, especially having children because, you know, that becomes a, a closed circle. You, you have a life that you're really, not just your life, but you have a life you're taking care of and you're responsible for. And that becomes the center of things in ways that other people used to be the center of things. And uh, I'm trying to remember why this whole thing came up. Well, you were asking me about uh, people I knew if I kept in touch with the people from my 20s. Yeah, but why was I thinking of that? Uh Oh, I know, I know, because I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about Ben Mize the other day, uh, and 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 I was listening to some of his music. Ben was our drummer, uh, our second drummer, and he was with the band for a decade. Made recovering the satellites, this desert life, hard candy, and a lot of the material on uh, Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. You know, he was a part of that too, and uh, he was such a good guy. It was harder for him, I think, because he was from Georgia. And he still lived in Athens a lot of time, and things that were important to him, the, the girl he loved as well was in Athens. And so even when we were home, quote unquote, making records in LA, which was home for the rest of us or close enough for uh, like Dave Bryson, who could just go up to San Francisco, um, it was still 
a long way from home for Ben. So he was kind of away from home a lot of the time. And uh, I think that wore him down after a while. Um, but he was such a great band member. And uh, whenever we play down in Atlanta, I'm always happy to see him. And But one of the things he did while we were all together was he made a record of his own while we were all together. Um, and it's a really cool record. And I was listening to some of it the other day. It's called Nantahela. Does he play other instruments besides drums? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Sing he kind of taught it? himself to play guitar, I think, while we were in the band together. And he sings. Um, I was going to play you some of it. Sure. Because it's, uh, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, you know, no, I'd love it's to a, hear that. It's sort of a, a sad, sweet record, but I really dig it, you know. Well, I know you've always talked glowingly of Ben and, and, and how he really kind of rejuvenated the band and, and, and really added a great sensibility to things like Miller's Angels and and you got and, and I know how fond fondly you hold dear recovering the satellites. It was brave. You guys changed producers, you tried different sounds, you tried experimenting and that was what Counting Crows is all about. And Ben was there for really the birthing of that. But he also reminds me reminds me of my my drummer Anthony in the band. He taught himself how to play guitar towards the end of the band and, and had sweet voice. He was always the great background singer. He his and my voices mesh really well. And I whenever he would write songs and send them to me, I it's still to this day he'll do it. And I'm always so moved by it because he's always got that great Great voice and that, and I'm brought back and it's it's interesting because drum drummers are always considered to be my brother's a drummer and I can play the drums so we have an affinity for drummers and and I had such a great t- time in Toronto talking to Jim your current uh, drummer Jim Dog it, it was so much fun talking drums hearing his journey playing with all these different acts and Cheryl Crow and then finally getting to you guys and how much it means to him to to be in a band a drummer needs to be in a band man you know that idea and then for somebody like that to leave a band. At, at its heights, to go and have a private life, but still have musical aspirations and to express them is well, really, I mean, really laudable. Jim has been a revelation for us. Uh, just not just because of his playing, which is without peer. I mean, he's an incredible drummer, but his uh, his demeanor too, because he's such a happy guy, you know, and such a, a funny guy, and uh, and he's just so immensely talented. You know, Ben just came along at a time when things could have gone really wrong for us. The first time we lost a band member in the middle of the biggest tour off our first record. Uh, and it could have been devastating. You know, bands mostly don't last very long. Things fall apart. Someone leaves. Uh, someone gets kicked out. And it's never the same again after that. And that could have been what happened with us, you know. But Ben came and, you know, instead we made Recovering the Satellites and and This Desert Life and Hard Candy. And we did so much great work with him. And he, you know, he's just such a unique guy because all the rest of us are from around the same area, West Coast for sure, mostly from, you know, the Bay Area, or at least we were living in the Bay Area then. Charlie grew up down south. You know, I grew up all over. But Ben was from Georgia. Also, from the town that was Oz for me where I always wanted to go right. was Athens, Georgia and Ben was from Athens you know and uh, you got that REM pedigree in you in your band yeah <laughs> and, and, you know and it's funny uh, yeah it was just you know he was a long way from home and he was a very unique guy and, I, and he still is you know, he's a teacher down there now and he's raising a family and his son is like the, the coolest sweetest kid and he's still Ben you know let me play you some of this because it's you know uh I think Ben was having a hard time in some ways by the time he made this record. In, what year was it? I think it's 2003. So it's right after he left the band then. 
No, I don't think he's gone yet, Ben. Oh, he's still in the band? Yeah, yeah. When did he leave the band? Sometime after Oh, right, that. right, because 2008 would have been Saturday night, so if he's playing on that. Well, he played on some of the stuff because we recorded it earlier. Earlier, right. It's some from other records. So mid-2000s then he was. Yeah, sometime in there he left. Um, it's right... Ah, shit, I can't remember when the hell it was. It might have been like right after or during Hard Candy that he made it. Was it released? I don't know. I mean, I have a copy of it, but I don't know. Oh, wow. So sure. this could just, be a like, debut right here for a lot of people here. Well, I, I mean, I think it was... Well, what does released mean now? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good um, point. You could just be on Spotify now and you're out there. I'm going to play a few songs from it, though. This is Barber Street. The record's called Nantahala. Um, this is Ben Mize.
song and a really very intimate recording of a song sounds like he's right here you know i love that you know the whole living room sound thing he sounds like he's right here playing for you i did want to make a comment about drummers in counting crows it's a very musical other bands it's a background thing we talked about charlie watts and his playing off of keith richards and bands obviously keith moon has had his own uh way of playing every drummer brings a different thing to a band but counting crows drummers had to be very musical in a sense where, and you've talked about many times, you play off the drums. The vocals are playing off the drums. So here's a guy who clearly knows his way around a melody and knows how to craft a song and present it. And, uh, you know, it's very impressive, drummer or not. You can't even, he's saying with a lot of cool harmonies in the band, too, that are hard to recreate now because they're the, the middle, you know, the sort of the glue that keeps the harmony together, that middle harmony, the, the, not the low, because Charlie could always do the real low stuff, but... Not the high above my voice either, but just like a little bit below my voice. Hmm. That sort of mid-range harmony that's so hard to find people who can sing that. But it can be really, really cool. Like, he does one of those on Daylight Fading, and we've never been able to figure out how to sing it. Like, no one else can seem to get it. Wow. Um, well, you know, Jim Jim sings on quite a few things, Yeah, right? but Jim sings high and oh, really good up there. But, um, yeah. but uh, those band harmonies that he could just hear, they were hard to do, you know. Jim's great. Uh, got a higher voice. Great, great harmony singer. Right, right. Um uh, but it's composing those middle mid-range ones are hard, is hard too. Not everyone naturally hears those. It's much easier to hear the one right above the vocal. It's a it's a fine example of somebody sitting down and really structuring a song and 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 that has nothing really going on except for his guitar playing. This what sounds like a little cello. There's cello. There's bass. There's drums. You know, I I I, well, I think he played probably a lot of himself. The other singer. I was trying to figure out who that was listening to it. It sounds almost like Vic Chestnut, who was a good friend of, of Ben's, but I don't know. I couldn't figure out who that other singer was. Um, oh, the high harmony on that? Yeah, it's a yeah. great sounding voice. Really cool, interesting sounding voice. I wonder if that was Vic. I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, it reminds me a lot of a lot of stuff that came later, like people like Iron and Wine and the way the yes. intimacy of those recordings and how they sound, the very like stark closeness of a lot of the recordings for them or... Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It sounds really cool. That's a great sounding song. It's a great compositional song. I love the chord changes uh, in it. Uh, the... It goes to a minor there, and it you know really brings it down to like a sad kind of bridge. Not a bridge, but it, it's 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 very interesting. I'm not saying it's not not like somebody just picked up a guitar and just kind of threw a three chord thing in there and expressed themselves. That's a crafted song. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. You guys, play another one. This, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. Caroline. Same uh, record, or yeah, same collection of Right. Uh, dig it.
playing everything on that. I love that song. Great song. It reminds me so much of the early stuff that Dave Grohl did right before he kind of formed the Foo Fighters. Kind of like you could see the drumming lineage in the songwriting. I, I like it. It drives ahead. It's got a great melody. It doesn't really remind me of anything. He's got a very unique voice. I like it a lot. You know, I wonder if that was Vic Chesson on that first song. I don't know if anyone knows who Vic Chesson is, but... Uh, Vic was this incredible singer-songwriter from Athens, Georgia. You know, he, he had a car accident uh, when he was 18 uh, that left him mostly paralyzed, or at least partially paralyzed. He could play simple chords on a guitar and couldn't really walk very well at all. He was in a wheelchair for the rest of the... He's in, actually, there's a documentary about him, but he's also in the movie Sling Blade. He plays Terrence in Sling Blade. Ah, One of the friends who's around there when they had that sort of musical party yeah. in the backyard. You know, it's so funny you mentioned he's the guy in the wheelchair then? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that whole scene, I don't know if many people know that, that whole scene is rife with people who are famous musicians. The drummer in that, the guy with the big beard, he isn't even the drummer. He's just sitting off on the side. I think he's like the roadie guy. No, he might be the drummer. He was the drummer after Levon Helm. Levon Helm left Dylan's band oh, in really? England 
to, to leave. I forget his name, but he at the time he had like this bull haircut young kid, and he was the banger. He's the guy in the famous, you know, uh, audio in the background of uh, Judas when they oh. do play it fucking loud. It, they, it half of that is is him screaming. He said because he was from. Uh, America, they were all Canadians, you know, and he was like, yeah, screw this. And he was like, that one of the reasons why he knew when he came on the tour that they were getting shit was one of the reasons why. Uh, and of course, the other guy is Dwight Yoakam. Dwight Yoakam is in that band. That's yeah. right. He plays the villain in that movie. That, that's yeah. just rife with uh, musicians. I had no idea. That's pretty cool. Um, I, well, I, I kind of came on to Vic Chestnut because uh, David Lowry of Camber Van Beethoven and Cracker asked me if I'd ever heard Vic once. And he said, well, if you ever want to really understand the meaning of sorrow, you have to listen to West of Rome. Uh, so I want to play you that song actually because Dave Lowry was like, I think that's the way you put it. It's an it is an incredible. He was an incredible songwriter. One of the first things I was ever on was the first Sweet Relief record, which was done as a benefit for Victoria Williams. But the second Sweet Relief record was about Vic Chestnut, and a bunch of people covered his songs. I was on Opelousas with Maria McKee uh, on the first Sweet Relief record. That's the, that's like maybe the first thing I ever recorded on on, a, on for a label. The second uh, record was Vic Ch- was about Vic Chestnut, though, and uh, everybody covered his songs. Um, and Michael Stipe produced some of his records. You know, people were pretty blown away by Vic. He's a great songwriter. This is one of his songs. This is, this is West of Rome. One will 
emotional stuff the the last part where he really takes off there vocally is very moving uh, up until then i was reminded and i was mentioning to you while i was playing uh, some of keith richards ballads later on in the stones um emotional rescue does a song called all about you and he did a series keith did a series of uh, demos in toronto in a hotel room when he thought he was going to jail for a long time <laughs> and that last drug heroin drug bust up there and in classic Keith fashion, he got out of it. But he did a series of demos, which are not demos, but like boot, bootleg stuff, like with a piano in a hotel room, singing old George Jones songs and old country songs. And it had that kind of, oh my God, I'm going away for a long time feel and that dreariness of the voice, the, the cigarettes. Uh, but then when he took off there at the end, it uh, reminded me of some of your vocal performances on some of the County Chorus records. It, just, it, t- it took on an emotional ride at the very end, for the rest of the song, he's kind of staying in that kind of Hank Williams range, and then he just goes for it at the end, which really drives the song home. What, what is that song actually about? Do you know? It's Life. very you know, He was a guy who was you know, left basically quadriplegic by that car accident, uh, and then realized you know, a little later that he, you know, he had some use of his hands, and he could still play simple chords on the guitar. So he's playing the guitar on that, possibly. Oh yeah, I think he probably is. Oh yeah, I don't know for sure, but um, the first time we went to Athens, you know, I had been dreaming about 
going there. I, I'd always wanted to go there since I saw that movie, Athens, Georgia, you know, in 1982 or 83, which had all those bands, Pylons, Sword Driver, I think, B-52s, the R.E.M., you know. There was this little town in Georgia where all these people were making music, and it really freaked me out, you know, like I needed to get there, you know. And uh, when we finally did go on this, on the first tour, we played the 40 Watt Club, which was the club, you know. And afterwards, uh, I mean, the person, the woman who ran it, Valina Vago, ran, ran the club. And they took us over. Like, we went over to Barry Buck's house later on. It was Peter Buck's ex-wife. And we were sitting on the porch there, hanging out with everybody. Because I guess they, like, I can't remember if we were there with Cracker or they just, you know, knew us. And so they, they kind of took us under their wing, though, the, whoever was there. Like, we ended up on the porch of this house and Vic was there. A bunch of other like just Athens cats, and it was it was just really cool. And every time we went there after that, it seemed like the town really took us to it. So, you know, like the Michael Stipe would show up with uh, Mike Mills, and it was just really cool. It was really you dream about going to a place. But when you get there, usually it's just you know you don't get to Paris and have like. Uh, Gertrude Stein and Picasso take you out for lunch, you know. Yeah. But weirdly, when we got to Athens, it was kind of like that. They, you know, I remember being on the porch of that house, this big house in Athens, after, late in the middle of the night after this gig, and being on the porch with a few people. And, and I remember Vic being there, and, and I feel like he was playing. I don't know. I just it, that that town really left me with some like very strong memories and then you know then Ben joined the band like a few months later I don't know why that that town meant a lot to me and we don't get to play there anymore because it's you know of course they, you always want to play Atlanta and it's so close by like when we were starting out you want to go to Athens it's a college town you know they're going to go out to see music now it makes more sense to play Atlanta because there's way 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 more people and we're going to draw an audience now for years, we went back to the 40 watt and played, though, and played in or the Georgia Theater, or uh, I don't know. It was really cool, and we don't we don't get to go back there much anymore. Maybe that could be like uh, you know how they, sometimes they have these bands go back and play one show and then you know film it. You know, you could go to the 40 watt and just do a Counting Crows at the 40. You know, it, it, there's a romantic aspect to Athens. That I learned about working on the Zevon book because I interviewed Andy Slater, thanks to Mark Didio, who works, you know, your man- manager and for Red Light, and the story of Andy going and getting, who later on would manage Fiona Apple and and then Wallflowers. He he saved Warren Zevon's life and brought him down to Athens because his roommate in college was um, was Peter Buck, and Peter Buck loved. He and Peter Buck used to listen to the first Warren Zevon album all the time. But who's your main college? Was Peter Buck? Peter Buck went to college with Andy Slater. I don't know with if Andy. Were, no yeah, shit. Yep. Yeah. And he brought it. He said, "Would you do me a favor? I'm going to bring Warren down there. Can you play?" And at that time, they had just started doing these gigs around town uh, with there's another singer for the Hindu. They call themselves the Hindu Love Gods. And later on, oh, yeah. Warren sat in with them and they did a series of songs. And then after REM got big, they put it out. And it was kind of against everybody's wishes. Uh, they do a fantastic version of Raspberry Beret with Warren singing. Uh, that's something we should play on the show someday, maybe even today. And uh, But anyway, so Warren was saved by going down to Athens and breathing in 
the air of it and the camaraderie. And I think the reason why I bring it up, and you you, you brought it up there, and it kind of inspired me to to talk about it is REM has been one of those bands in my study of rock and roll history that like Springsteen with New Jersey you know they stayed there they home base there they made it their place you know we talked about Iggy and staying in Detroit for a long time they went out to LA and completely disbanded and then had to go back to Detroit to get their breath back you know those guys did a great job of of making putting Athens on the map and then just not escaping it to go somewhere else they stayed there and and to a certain extent Mike always had a house in LA because he lived right by uh, he lived near Emory I'm pretty sure oh I'm sure those guys when they got famous and and, and, you know and Michael lived here right but there was something about REM down there I mean for at least two or three records they were recording down there and staying down there and it was where people would go to flock much like people for Cobain in Seattle or, you know, just pick a place in the United States. And there really wasn't an Athens movement there way, the way there was a Seattle sound or a Motown sound or the, the, the funny thing about the Minneapolis sound, it's really just Prince and 15 bands that Prince is playing music on. That, no, know, that no, that's not true. There's a lot of bands in Minneapolis. Well, Who's after do and Right. You know, there, there's a ton of uh, the Jayhawks. There's a shitload of really right. great bands that came I'm talking about the rock and roll. You were talking about the rock and roll. I'm talking about like that kind of Minneapolis sound that Prince made famous. Oh, like yeah. The, yeah, and a lot of that stuff was just Prince playing on everyone's records. And he, that was a cadre, you know, a coterie of people that he had. I mean, anyway, it, there was more. I mean, Athens, that's what I remember the most about it was that movie and the knowledge that there was this little town in Georgia that had 10 great bands. Right. So how many bands of those really came out of there and, and, and made a noise? Uh, well, the two big ones obviously are B fifty two and, and, and yeah, uh, but also um, Swerve Driver, Pylon were like indie bands. Right? Uh, yeah, I don't I've remember heard you those who else was in that movie. I'd have to look it up, but I remember seeing it, and like every band was a cool band, and I was so like, wow, how can this all be going on in one little town? Right. Let's see if there's something about the movie in here. Well, yeah, it's the other thing, too, is that that's the great thing about rock and roll, whether it's, you know, Muscle Shoals and Mobile or uh, certainly in Memphis, um, the little, uh, you know, Sun Records. I've never been, and that's one of the places I'd like to visit. I almost went last year, but then something else came up at how small Sun Records is and how teeny tiny, but how seminal and how it's the mecca uh, or the, the dump that was CBGB's. Uh, you know, these small places where things blossom out of, and then they get this idea that's a great myth of, of rock and roll. Not really a myth. It's sort of the the lore is the word I'm looking for uh, of rock and roll, where people want to go back there and, like I said, breathe the same air, go in the same clubs because that's where the music was made. That's where the passion came from. Well, you know, this is the story, the uh, summary of the movie. Led by the success of the B-52s and R.E.M., Athens, Georgia was the most happening music scene in the country by the mid-80s. Following several different bands from different genres, this film paints Athens as a magical artistic environment where bands are not in competition but coexist in harmonies. Live performance of R.E.M.'s Swan Swan H. and Dream All I Have to Do at the Lucy Cobb Institute Chapel are included. Also featured are performances and interviews from the B-52s, Pylon, Barbecue Killers, Time Joy, Jim Herbert, Flat Duo Jets, Love Tractor, Kilkenny Cat, Squalls, and more. I mean, I totally remember Pylon, Flat Duo Jets, Love Tractor. I know Pylon from you. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it was just... I remember watching the movie. I guess Swerve uh, Drivers from somewhere else. But, I mean, I remember just freaking out seeing that movie at, like, the UC Theater in Berkeley, which is one of the rep theaters. I feel like it's where it was. What year did that come out, did they say? Um, it came out Late in 19... 19- 
Where's 1987. Yeah. I remember seeing it on HBO one time. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those, uh, again, if if you are of the era that we grew up and then REM came out, I remember being, I think I've mentioned this before in an earlier podcast, maybe one of our discussions about how I was working at my college radio station in Mercer County, New Jersey, and uh, they sent us the first EP and by R.E.M. All right. The yeah. one with the gargoyle on the front. Yeah. And just being completely, you know, bowled over by that. We had never heard, I had never, I don't, I don't really, I, w- I would put it as, you know, a needle drop moment for me in a sense where when I first heard Van Halen and I was like, what the hell? And I had the same feeling about Warren Zevon the first time I heard Warren I remember Zevon. that with that. Uh, on that, with that EP? That EP, because that's my freshman year in college. And it's Radio Free Europe is the song that yeah, yeah. bounces out. Yeah. Like, and I, I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, wow. You yeah. know? It didn't sound like anything else then. You had to put yourself then. Of course, R.E.M. ended up becoming international superstars and a huge band. And, but then it really had that dirt and moss and heat and sweat of Georgia in those songs. They were, I always called them mossy. Uh, there was something about the the unintelligible singing of Michael Stipe that really lent itself to let's try to figure out what the hell this guy is singing it reminded me so much of Exile on Main Street my Stones connection again just that muddy what the hell's Jagger saying there like everything's equal in this in the band the vocals are equal to everything else uh, it's very very unique Chronic Town that's what it was called Chronic, Chronic Town. Town yeah it's 1982 the thing, other thing I remember that year was War the needle drop on War and hearing uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday come out I think War is actually the year before but I heard it then and uh I'm a freshman in college. I'm just writing my first songs. I'm really getting knocked out by that. It's a good time to be young. It was. It was a good time. Like any time. Every generation has it. But to hear those songs then, despite the fact that I've heard Radio Free Europe a thousand times since then, it still brings me right back to that. That is definitely – you You brought – I mean I know it's a, it's a general say, saying needle drop moment, but that one for me certainly was. I had never heard – and I was listening to 20, 30 new records a week we were getting, uh, you know, in. Because, you know, it was college radio, and we were getting all the new shit. And uh, and not a lot of it spoke to me, I'll be quite honest with you. This was the time when New Wave got a little cute for me. I never got into the new romantic stuff, and we talked about Duran Duran and that kind of stuff. There was a lot of stuff that I couldn't really connect to, but R.E.M. I connected to immediately. Yeah, that early 80s independent music for me was everything. It was a port in was- a storm is what it was for me. Yeah. Nothing on the radio was really speaking to me at that time. I want to play another. This is another band from down there. I don't know if they're from Athens or from North Carolina because Ben used to spend a lot of time in both places, and I, I'm not exactly sure where this band was from. Um, they're a band called Cafeteria that were friends of Ben's, and uh, they were really cool. And they made this album called Knee Deep in 2000. Um, and I still have it on my computer from like... I actually have the record over there on the wall, but this one song uh, is called Started Off With Cocaine, and I, <laughs> it just killed me. Like, Well, I'll play it for you. A lot of their songs are about overdoing it, getting fucked up, and in a really sad way, like a dissolute. They're about dissolution. Uh, maybe the whole album is in a way, but this one song just knocked me out.
Started off with cocaine And it all ends much the same I'm still in love with you Uh-huh I guess I've needed Still in love with you Yeah, you know, listening to that, and that's Taylor Joyner is like the guy who's a singer, I think, in that band. They, are, I don't know what I'm thinking. They are definitely an Athens band. Um, I'm looking on the on the credits for that record, and uh, Jack Logan sings background vocals on it. If you remember him, he's an indie, southern indie kind of singer songwriter. Uh, Sounds familiar. And uh, he had a record called Bulk at one point that was really cool. Uh, and William Tonks, who I remember meeting through. Uh, Ben is playing the the dobro and the guitar on there, which are really cool. Yeah, I, I love that song. It just seems like a perfect little bit of craftsmanship songwriting. Yeah, it has that flavor. Got that great melody to it, and uh, yeah, Cafeteria is the name of the band. I don't know if they made other records. I just I had that one, Knee Deep, kind of knocked me out. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this. This particular podcast, I think people are going to be hearing a lot of this stuff. As we've done, you know, people have been very kind and been writing and tweeting and sending out 
emails occasionally I'll get from through my website, you know, hey, thanks for turning me on to this band or that band, as I sure you are. And uh, specifically in this one, I'm learning a lot about, you know, certainly Ben Mises stuff. It's fantastic. I hope people will have a chance to get that stuff and, 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 and have it for their collection or listen to it um, beyond our show. But I was reminded when you were talking about Ben, I was reminded of uh, other drummers that had put out records. And one song that reminded me immediately of when I heard the first one was uh, a drummer for Ani DeFranco, who I befriended in the mid-90s. Um, I did a series of interviews with Ani in the late 90s about politics, environmental issues. She became very much of a, not only an entrepreneur, started her own business in Righteous Babe Records. I became very friendly with the Righteous Babe people. Um, Just giving, through my column, Reality Check in the Aquarian Weekly, giving Ani a voice for a lot of her causes. And, um, And she's still very much involved in those. But Andy was, Andy Stochansky is his name. He was the drummer in her original trio that she had, that she toured with for years in the 90s. Uh, Andy did a series of solo albums. This is from his third solo album. And um, it's a song that we, my wife and I loved very much. We listened to a lot uh, after we shaved our heads and went west. Called 22 Steps, which is a beautiful little pop song. But it's just... Andy always had a great voice. He sang all the harmonies in Ani's songs. We were always very musical, very jazzy, uh, a lot of folk in there. But he was always the driving force behind a lot of her great rock and roll songs. Anyway, this is a sweet little song. It's called 22 Steps from a 2002 record. And for the life of me, I can't remember that album. But a Five Star Motel. Five Star Motel. Thank you, my friend. Very welcome. <laughs> know your birthday It's what to get the colors you wear We'd buy our bikes We'd ride on Sundays You'd review the books I Twenty-two steps from the walk to your door Takes twenty-two steps, cause I've tried it before And one day I'll knock, but just not yet If I were him, I'd buy the His house in the front, not by the lake. And I know it takes twenty-two steps from the walk to your door. It takes twenty-two steps, cause I've tried it before. And one day I'll knock, but just not yet. And I'm not so sure that you would not say, Get out, don't step in. I will never try again. I'm not so sure 
That's a great song. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I love the sentiment. I figured you might get a kick out of it. The the sentiment and the lyrics. You know, he starts off with, and this is a million done a million times in songs. But you know, if I were him, I'd know your birthday. Just what to get, the colors you'd wear. We'd buy old bikes. We'd ride on Sundays. You'd review the books I sent. I love that. But it's funny. It just goes to the whole thing because obviously she's not being, you know, in his mind, she's not being given. Uh, the attention that she needs and I love how he ends it there if I were him I'd know your birthday wish it's really sweet and how he counts the steps from the walk to her door which is the title of it I, I you know I, I, I'm a sucker for songs like that the guy you know sitting in his car that, that's like again one step from stalking song that we always talk about I don't even know if it's much of a step it's pretty much stalking <laughs> <laughs> he knows exactly what color she likes. He has no business being in her life. It's it's the borderline creepy, but very romantic. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. So here's the theme of this podcast, without knowing it. It's, <laughs> it's guys who used to be in bands who then start their own thing and go off and do it. <laughs> Not entirely, but, you know, uh, that's exactly what Andy Stochansky is. It's what Ben was. Yeah. Uh, right. So... It just when you were talking about Andy, I just got me thinking about Jason Faulkner, who I have not seen in years. But Jason was this incredible singer and guitar player, and he was in a band in the Paisley Underground in L.A. called The Three O'Clock. And then he later joined Jellyfish. He's on Jellyfish for the first album and the tour. And the first time I saw Jellyfish with Immer on their first tour in San Francisco at the Warfield, they blew our minds because they could do everything on that record. There was nothing they couldn't do. The harmonies were insanely good. Is that then, before Belly Button or that's Belly Button? That's Belly Button, the yeah, first one. That that record is amazing. Yeah, and uh, a big part of that was because they managed to get Jason to come play guitar and sing backgrounds. Uh, you know, and after a little while, he got a little bored with doing that, I think. He took off and made the record with Eric uh, Matthews. And he went off and made a bunch He went off and made a bunch of really cool albums on his own and produced other people. And he's got, like, all the pop. And when I say pop, I mean the Raspberries and Big Star. And, like, he's got all the pop sense in, like, one hand that most people have an entire body. He plays incredible guitar. He sings. He writes harmonies. It's just hook central they're all kind of wonderful pop guitar extravaganzas. This is his debut album in 96. It's called uh, Jason Faulkner Presents Author Unknown. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is I Live. He's a little more volume. Yeah, shut up. She's driving by 
says we've met I don't think so I remember a face like that She's just standing there Better show her what fate looks like Ever to confuse 
either one of those songs or this band uh that's not true i heard the first song before it was or is very very familiar to me and that was named was the first i live one? i live i live and then the second one what was that one we just heard miracle medicine <clears throat> yeah so that's very very uh and this this gentleman was in jellyfish then yeah and he, the three o'clock before that yeah. yeah his vocals sound very familiar that's probably where i heard that first one um but yeah it's good. Um, so Jason, after this, is in a band called The Grays for a bit. And I can't remember who else is in The Grays. It's it's like another super group kind of thing, I feel like. Uh, John Bryan is in it. Dan McCarroll. Um, and then he actually helps out recording some stuff for a friend of his named Brendan Benson. Uh, Brendan Benson is the singer for the Raconteurs, Jack White's band. Um, but I'm kind of going the opposite direction because while Jason Faulkner left Jellyfish to to do his solo stuff, Brendan Benson was around doing solo stuff for a while and then joined the Raconteurs with Jack White. He's the singer in that band for most, of, I think, a lot and of stuff. And that's prior to White Stripes? No, after White Stripes. Oh, it is. Okay. More recently. He, you know that the band, the Raconteurs? No. Um, I'll find you some of that but I want to play a little Brendan Benson okay because it's great American kind of pop music this is from the album One Mississippi his first record which was going to be produced by Jason Faulkner and I think they did some demos for it and they ended up doing it with Ethan Johns but it's pretty cool stuff this is some stuff from One Mississippi by Brendan Benson Drinking tea. If it's good enough for me, then it's good enough for you. We can have tea for two. How do you do? But if you have to leave, then please leave. Don't let me keep you.
Uh, that's Brendan Benson with actually the first three songs off his first record, uh, One Mississippi. That's T and then Bird's Eye View and then Sitting Pretty. It, a lot of that record works like just one long suite. I can keep going. The next two songs flow right into each other too. It, uh, what are the next two songs? Uh, something and then Cross-Eyed. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a really great record. Uh, it, it really knocks me out. I, I, I'd love to do a whole thing on just that... Uh, American guitar pop bands like that. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's, that's my favorite Beatle, we can call it Beatle Maniacs. Beatle Maniacs, as you mentioned during our chamber pop extravaganza. Um, there's quite a bit of all of that in that. Um, good songwriting. That last song reminds me sort of a precursor to the power pop that ended up dominating the late 90s. Um, you know, I'm reminded of Third Eye Blind or any of that kind of stuff. There's uh, a lot of Matthew Sweet in there, too. To yeah, me, oh, you know. yeah, oh, yeah. These guys, you know, they, they did their homework. And it's hard to not be inspired uh, by the Beatles. They they are, in many ways, the foundation to a lot of what happens, as we've talked about. Even though we, we did not play, we played one short Beach Boys song off of um, Smile and nothing from the Beatles in our chamber pop extravaganza because, you know, people know the Beatles, but there's a, there's a foundation there that is constantly used as a jumping off point. And, and, and in some ways, a blatant, <laughs> we'll call it homage, but a, uh, a robbery by some people. But that's a really, that's a good, if that's a robbery, that's a good robbery. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. That's a beautifully done pop song. Yeah, I mean, it's a suite of songs, much like the second side of Abbey Road, and there's more of that right. on this record. He made a bunch of great music that way, and there's a reason that guys like him and Jason Faulkner uh, get together to work. You know, there's other guys. Uh, ben Queller makes some of my favorite records of the 2000s. Um, ben Folds. Sure. Ben Lee. A number of guys named Ben. Ben, ben Lee, Ben Folds, and Ben Queller, who all get together and have a band called The Bens ben. at one point. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the guy Chris Brown that we played in another podcast a little while ago. Right, um, right. Uh, bands like Big Star and Badfinger, certainly influenced by the Beatles. I don't know if you ever heard of Cotton Mather. Remember Klaatu? Klaatu. Cotton Mather. Uh, also, Daryl Ann from Holland was a great Beatlesque band. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, Paul Rungan, I mean, Todd Rungan had started out in the Naz, and yes. a lot of Todd Rungan's records have that stuff. The Posies, Red oh, Cross, Gigolo Ants. Todd Rungan, I think it was a Utopia, Utopia record. They did uh, something called Deface the Music. Deface the Music, yeah. Which is just Beatles songs switched around and back and forth. It's kind of what Kiss did with the Rolling Stones songs. You know, like the first four or five Kiss songs that, that those guys wrote, they took like Bitch by the Stones and just played it backwards <laughs> to write songs. Um, but the Beatles especially, people are nicked out. I mean, there are some people clearly doing Beatles, and that's a, for another podcast. They're clearly going, let's go for the Beatles. Everyone misses the Beatles. Like, well, early I, I don't Beatles. think that's a thing. I think it's that they love the music. Like, the, like, and what's not to To me, love? Brenda Benson loves uh, writing songs with great melodies, great harmonies, great guitar parts. Right. That happens to be very Beatlesque, but it's not like they're not Beatlesque. Those aren't Beatles songs. They're like you know, they're Brendan Benson songs or Ben Queller songs or you know. Right. Um, Plus, we talked about Bacharach and David. 
so many of the great Paul Simon in an earlier podcast. These are guys who just wrote great songs just because the Beatles were bigger than everybody else. And they did invent a lot of the stuff that you hear in these songs, especially with the singing. Um, these are guys who, who made great pop records that everybody is taking from and borrowing. Or they're just doing it on their own and immediately goofballs like us will go, oh, that's this. I mean, I know I am as guilty, if not more so than anybody else, to say anything you play for me on this podcast. I'm like, ooh, that's got a little bit of that in it and a little bit of that in it. And that's what makes doing this so much fun because I hear other things that I enjoyed or I try to make it a touchstone for somebody who's listening to this music for the first time and say, oh, you know what? I like R.E.M. I would like this. You know, and I really don't think it's a... Uh, I mean, I totally agree with what you just said. I, I, don't, I don't think it's that we should make this because everybody misses the Beatles because if there's one thing that's true of all these guys who make some of my favorite records, great guitar pop records that have great hooks, great harmonies... Uh, great guitars. None of them are really successful. Everyone I just named, all of a bunch of my favorite bands, the Posies, Gigolo Ants, Red Cross, uh, the Naz, Jason Faulkner, Jellyfish, the Raspberries, Daryl Ann, Cotton Mather, Brendan Benson, Ben Queller, Ben Folds, Ben Lee, Badfinger, Chris Brown, Big Star. None of these are really, really successful bands. Right, right. They make records that some of us absolutely love. Well, the Raspberries had a couple of hits. Certainly, Raspberries did, yeah. Certainly, uh, uh, and they could have been bigger. They also were beset by trouble and suicide and, and business dealings that really screwed them bad finger. But a couple hits is not the same thing as having been a really successful band. And, and the Raspberries and, and Bad Finger are the only the ones only in there ones. who you can say that of. You know, the rest of it is just like, you know... It's the great lost records that, that we love, that a lot of craft and a lot of dedication are put into, and a lot of really original songwriting and singing. I could throw Teenage Fan Club in there, too. Sure. Uh, but very few of them were very successful, because it turns out, for some reason, everybody listens to the Beatles so much that nobody misses the Beatles, because they got the Beatles. Well, that's a really good uh, I mean, uh, yes. it doesn't seem to make the same impression on the marketplace or on the popular psyche as it does on the psyche of a bunch of musicians well i I had to write the 20 no excuse me i'm sorry the half century the 50th anniversary of sergeant peppers this past summer did the cover piece for the the aquarian and it was hard to do just much like we talk about on this podcast how hard it is to write a love song when it's been written a billion times if you find a new way so i tried to find a new way of expressing it and the one thing i found really incredible about that is sergeant pepper's is played now on the radio. I'm driving home. I put on rock radio. There's a chance I will hear a song from Sajibar. There's a chance. Would there ever have been a chance in 1967 that you would have heard a song from 1917 on the radio? <laughs> no, I mean, but rock and roll. But you know, but you would have had, well, you would have had classical music stations which were playing music from over several hundreds of years right. of classical music. But what I'm trying to say is the looming es- – I'm trying to back up what you're oh, saying. Yeah, yeah. The looming essence of the Beatles. I somewhat half-jokingly, but I did it really – I do believe there was one period, that second that sec- or third generation of rock and roll. You got that first wave in the 50s and then you had that, that British wave You know, after that small respite when Elvis goes in the army and Chuck Berry gets arrested and everything. You know, you know, Fabian and everything kind of kills rock and roll. becomes sort of a parody. Then here come the Beatles and the English wave that reminds America what's so great about rock and roll. And then we all – embrace it and that changes music forever then there's another wave in the late 60s early 70s where the Beatles have already come and gone in many senses especially in the early 70s where those that first wave of bands didn't really have to compete with the Beatles it was like this looming cloud over over them of the Beatles including by the way 
the guys in the Beatles. They constantly had to live with the fact that they weren't the Beatles, that Paul didn't have John to reel him in when he got too cute, and John didn't have Paul to reel him in when he got too radical. And this is the kind of thing that, they, that the Beatles did to the entire music business. But when you hear stuff like this, it's the charm is what I'm trying to say. People love the charm of those records. They forgot about the monolith that that's, that's the Beatles. And they got to love what's so great about that music. Well, one of the things that happens right after them is, is, is Big Star who makes Beatlesque music with heavier guitars at times and a, and a more personal bent to the lyrics and the singing. It's, it's heartbreakingly personal from Chris Bell and from Alex Chilton. And every bit as much as every, no one ever bought a Velvet Underground record, but everyone who did picked up a guitar, no one ever bought a Big Star record, but everyone who did picked up a guitar, it's just, it's all those bands. And the, unfortunately, with the Big, with the big Star None of them are successful except uh, the replacements, REM, us. I, I'm sure there's a few more. Teenage fan club, kind of. You know, but but I mean, the Beatles, as handed down through Big Star, influences a massive amount of bands to write songs with guitars and harmonies in the indie rock era of the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's just that very few of them have any success right you know uh, and that's we don't know a lot of those bands but you know they had a lot of influence everyone I just named had a lot of influence on me um, I can remember driving everyone crazy at the photos at the photo shoots for uh, Hard Candy which went on for two or three days with Peggy Sirota because I had just gotten uh, the first Ben Queller album, Shasha, and I wouldn't stop playing it for three days. I just played it over and over again. I was so obsessed with it that I just made them play it over and over and over again. I drove everybody crazy, but you know, I could sing the entire record um, <laughs> at the time. Uh, we, you know, I really want to do that podcast because I want to play a ton of uh, Brendan Benson and a ton of Ben Queller for people, right, and right. and some Ben Folds and uh, some Badfinger. You know, those records are the posies. Like, I love the posies. Yeah. No, I Teenage mean, the, fan club. those are all fair, beautiful maniacs. No question about it. But before we wrap, and I don't know if we have to for this podcast, but before we wrap, I don't know. I just can't get it out of my head. I would love to play, maybe on the way out, um, the uh, Hindu Love Gods Raspberry Beret, if we could, to bring it all back to Athens again, even though we're not playing any REM on this podcast because people know and love REM. Um, and I know we, 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 inundated people a few podcasts ago about Warren Zevon and we definitely want to do a Warren show when my book comes out in June but I just love that cover I love the raw aspects of the Hindu love gods I just found out that it is on Spotify for a while it wasn't it originally was in giant records release and again they threw this out there because they just they were playing so much together they just decide uh, Warren had a great line oh no I think it was Mike Mills who had a great line we play till the food comes <laughs> And that, they just kept playing. So people kept running tape and they recorded all these blues standards and stuff. And for some reason, they did Raspberry Beret. But it's great because the whole basis of the song is around that bridge part. You know that part of, uh, sure. of Raspberry Beret? But they based the whole song around that riff. And they're so raw and it's so ballsy. And I, and I write about it in my book about how R.E.M. had not yet gotten to the total mandolin piano like sort of that rootsy stuff they were still a kick-ass rockin' indie band right before they did um uh, my favorite uh rem record document 
is is when they were still, you know, and I love uh, all those first few records, but there's something, again, swampy, gutsy about these these songs that are on the Hindu Love Gods, and, of course, Warren's Growl, which really makes it, and because it's a Prince song, and, and Prince, this was still on the charts, this was still on the radio when they recorded it, so <laughs> it wasn't even like a homage, it just, they just did Raspberry Beret. Just so you're all clear on this, uh, Hindu Love Gods is basically R.E.M., with Warren Zevon as the lead singer. <laughs> so if you can imagine that, that's what you're getting right here. And we should probably get out of here after this. So uh, saying goodbye from the Underwater Sunshine podcast. This is uh, Adam Duritz and my friend. I'm James Campion. Thanks again. Keep those cards and letters coming, people. We really appreciate you listening. <laughs> Later. Peace. Different than the time before That's when I saw her